Welcome to the Fire Science Show. Today we're going to talk less engineering, more, let's say, organization of the fire community and uh, some advancements that have been made over the last decade. We're going to talk about education, the new generation of, of fire safety engineers. And uh, we will do this on a very, very good example. We will discuss the program carried at four universities, Edinburgh, Lund, Ghent and Universitat Politecnica Catalonia. It's called International Masters in Fire Safety Engineering, IMFSE, and it's a blast. There's a bunch of people who have already graduated from the 10 years of this program. They are praised as one of the best young fire engineers entering the work market. They seem to be great fire scientists. There, in general, seems to be great development towards the, these young people that is worth uh, copying or worth uh, admiration. And this is what I really wanted to learn today from one of the creators of the program, Professor Bart Mercy of Kent University, and the newest member of consortium, Professor Eulalia Planas from Université Politécnica de Catalunya. We will discuss how IMFSC came to life and where it's heading nowadays. But the podcast episode is not just on the IMFSC. I guess it's interesting to learn about it, but it does not touch many of us. I think the importance of this episode is in understanding what makes this group of people excelling, why this particular group of people is so successful in fire safety engineering. And is there a way how, how we can copy some of the things they do there in improving our own education curriculums in our countries or maybe trainings in our organizations? Or maybe you're just a student who would like to make a switcheroo and uh, pick a new de destination. Or maybe you would just like to remind yourselves the good student days. Maybe this episode will bring you some nice memory flashbacks. Hope they're nice, actually. <laughs> so for me, it was an interesting journey to learn about this project and the chance to talk to nice people, <laughs> as usual. So yeah, let's learn about IMFSC. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm joined today by Professor Bart Mercy of Ghent University. Hey, Bart. Great to have you in the show. Hello, Wojciech. And Professor Eulalia Planas from... Universitat Politecnica de Catalunya. Hello, Olalia. Great to have you in the show. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. About to have a great interview. So always, always great to be in this mindset. The one thing that connects you both outside of being fire scientists is that you're part of IMFSC consortium. And this is what uh, we're going to talk about today, but not only praising of your, uh, of your magnificent master's program as the best in the world, but also to try and understand why it is the best in the world and how some others could, in some parts at least, copy your success because, uh, oh boy, we're not in a, an excess of, of good fire safety engineers in the world. Not at all. So my first question towards Bart, let, let's, let's move in time. I don't know how many years, even 12, 15, how long ago the idea happened and what, what made you think, like wake up in the morning and think I'm going to go through the madness of MSc program to start the world's best fire engineering course. Yeah, th thanks. <laughs> thanks, Wojciech. Thanks for the kind words. And, uh, it's proven by experiment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, it, indeed, I mean, you call it some madness and it's true when, when we started, there was a lot of work involved to get things started. The, a little bit of history then perhaps is that a bit more than 15 years ago, a predecessor at Kent University initiated the idea of starting a postgraduate program in fire safety engineering at Kent University. And mm -hmm. as a, a junior academic, I was the one who had the pleasure of doing all the admin. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I really <laughs> shared the vision that there was a need for fire safety engineering. But once the admin was completed for the, the local program at Kent University, I figured it would make sense to approach the, um, the universities of, of Lund and Edinburgh, who uh, were and are leading institutes in Europe to see if we could join forces and create this international program. And um, both were very enthusiastic. 
and then we just gave it a shot and submitted a file to the European Commission. And uh, while well, we were very happy to learn that from the start they uh, decided to support us, um, probably because partly because we we were all leading. Uh, institutes in the field of fire safety science mm -hmm. and engineering, but also there was no other international program on fire safety engineering. And so uh, certainly not of that size, because we immediately asked for a two-year master's program so that we could cover all the aspects and also take advantage of the specific expertise of each institute so that we could really create what we still believe is a, a very strong program. And this is how it got started. Yeah, and it's it's just getting better since then, for sure growing and um, getting new, new, new partners. So many institutions are supporting IMFSC. We're going to touch about that in a second, but I need to ask one more thing to your comment. Ghent had a, its own FSC program. Lund had its own. Edinburgh had its own. How did the introduction of IMFSC change the landscape of your own university? Like looking now, we know what happened 10 years after. It did not cannibalize your own program. I think it's even better than, than it used to be. So, so what, what was your experience like proposing a secondary program to a local one? Well, a, ma a major challenge was not to convince the academics in fire safety engineering. It was convincing the institutes to issue a joint degree because that involves also issuing a degree where, uh, well, most students visit each institute, but not all of them. And so you, you have to trust each other that you are delivering quality. And uh, that, that proved challenging, but uh, clearly not impossible because this is what we also could offer from the start. And as you say, we didn't cannibalize our own programs. And actually that was, that was also foreseen because we attract many, many international students, which has been a challenge for mm -hmm. local programs worldwide. And thanks to the scholarships granted by the European Commission, we managed to attract students that otherwise would not have studied at Edinburgh or Lund or Ghent. So, so we did not, say, divert existing students from existing programs into IMFSC to a very large extent were students that would otherwise not have been in, in Europe. And have you observed an increased interest in just fire safety engineering in Ghent based on the international success of IMFSC? Yes, uh, certainly, to, to some extent, yes. But one thing that we are still struggling with, uh, at least locally in Belgium, is the, the brand name of, of fire safety engineering. And this mm -hmm. this show, because we have prescriptive legislation in Belgium, yeah, so that <laughs> means that the term fire safety engineering is not as well known as in countries that are more performance-based, uh, design-oriented. And so it shows that there is still a lot of potential, I think, for uh, for many more people potentially being interested in the field of fire safety engineering that today is still, to some extent, unknown, even with architects in Belgium. I, I don't know if you have humanities department, but maybe you should start a code speak department or something that's more fit for non-FSC countries. Lalia, now to you, you're, uh, or your university, Universidad Politecnica de Catalunya, is a new family member, a uh, new partner at IMFSC. And tell me, how, how did you find yourself in, in the project and what was the, the main goal of, of introducing a, a new partner from outside of the scope that, that others covered? Well, in fact, we had some previous relationship in mm -hmm. terms of research with uh, Lund University, also with Edinburgh. Been doing several research together. So they knew each other since uh, quite long. Although we were more focused on risk and safety, the industry, the process industry, and also we've been working since many years in the field of oil on fires. In fact, it was Bart who approached us to try to improve or to bring together those disciplines because, in fact, in industrial safety was already part of the program. Uh, maybe not so deep in the knowledge, but it's already inside but not uh, while on fires, we were not part, maybe sometimes as a guest lecture or something that was not included in the program. So they see there is a, a need for the students to know about the future challenges of fire safety engineering, which include, of course, the interaction of the wild and fires with the built environment. So we have seen uh, many problems 
interface in years in the wildland urban interface. So this is something that the new graduates should be able to tackle. I think Southern Europe has experienced far more of these issues than than us comfortably sitting in the middle and then uh, your other IMFC partners from a little bit to the north. But uh, unfortunately, this is heading right towards us and it's a great, great direction to expand the program to, to, to give it this this twist. I wonder to I wonder how popular will it be to follow the um, wild and urban interface road. And I really also appreciate you expanding on the risk and industrial applications route. That that is something that uh, we also see see growing the use of risk methods in in fire engineering outside even of industry. I mean, I know tunnels and applications like like that. But to my understanding, you don't have a fire safety engineering program at at this moment at UPC yet. No, not yet. Uh, and I would say uh, not even in any other part of Spain, although there is a quite huge industry behind fire safety engineering mm. in Spain. And for example, in Catalonia, there is a cluster of companies related to the fire safety domain, let's say. And they, they have huge problems to find trained people, people knowing about fire safety engineering. So we are approached many, many times because our school is a school of engineering. So we have also mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, mm -hmm. materials engineers, different kinds of engineers. And we teach some courses, uh, optional mm -hmm. courses for them on introduction to the fire safety engineering. And some, some of them... Uh, came to do the final thesis, and and they are picked quickly. <laughs> they are not even specialists. They just have a little bit of, of knowledge on fire safety engineering. Well, I don't know exactly why is the mm. reason of that, but um, IMFC will bring a, a little bit to cover this this gap right now. I think it will be. Really, really yeah, good. It's, it's it's great we're having this discussion because what you described is not only description of the situation in Spain, it would be the description of situation in many, many countries in terms of professional education of, of fire safety engineers. And you now are very lucky to, to have IMFSC. However, uh, let's face it, it's, uh, it's producing fantastic, fantastic students, but not at the great numbers. I mean, that is a great number, but uh, nowhere close to what industry needs. So I guess eventually you would be also interested in replicating the model, the success in your own uh, institution or at least your own country. That's exactly what we're trying to discuss today, how, how to do that. Bart, now, now a question to you. When you were forming the first curriculum of the, um, of the course, I'm interested, how did you pick what the people must learn and in, in what order? Maybe because now today we, we have the, for example, SFP or competencies guide, which was a big project. I talked about the podcast with Jimmy Johnson about it. it. It was quite interesting to point out what a fire safety engineer needs to know. I guess 15 years ago, you, you had to in, invent that wheel on your own. And it's pretty round, I would say, <laughs> that wheel, it works. So, so um, how did you decide what to do and, and how, how does the program look now? Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question, Polchek. Uh, well, we didn't really have to invent the wheel. I mean, it's true what you say, that uh, a few years ago, SFP uh, came up with a very, I think, comprehensive and, and useful overview of what would be expected competencies. But in the middle of the 90s, uh, there was also the, the model curriculum that had been mm -hmm. developed by IFSS um, and that had oh, been published okay. in, in yeah. 1995, which was, I would say, written more uh, as an academic document, whereas the SFPE document uh, takes more the, the profession, I would say, as point of view. But that model curriculum really helped us a lot to, to streamline our first curriculum. And, and so when we came to think of it, putting our heads together, we all agreed quite quickly that we would attract students with diverse backgrounds meaning that students entering the program would have a background in, in mechanical engineering or structural engineering, architects, even chemical engineering. So that's a, it's quite a, a varied group as they enter the program, which is challenging, but mm -hmm. at the same time enriching. But it did lead us to define the first semester such that by the end of that first semester, 
everybody spoke the same language and in terms of technical okay. terms, I mean then. And so somebody with structural engineering background would have a relatively easy first semester when it came to those types of courses, but they would struggle perhaps a bit more in thermodynamics. And then mechanical engineer and chemical engineer would have the opposite, uh, let's say, effort to, um, to do. This, on top, of course, of, of settling in a new country, uh, for many of them, a new culture as well. But that's, a, that's another part of the story. But by the end of the first semester, then, everybody has, let's say, the same equipment uh, in terms of, of skills and knowledge to enter semester two, where they are all together at, at Lund University. And then you can build on that, teaching some more advanced phi dynamics, looking at human behavior, looking at risk assessments and, and introducing them to the first uh, simulation tools. And then in semester three, from that point onward, we can go more to our own specialties. Uh, so at the University of Edinburgh, traditionally, that was then uh, more structural uh, fire engineering. Uh, at Ghent University, we go more in-depth in different types of fire protection, active fire protection, passive fire protection, we teach about legislation. Uh, we also have a course on industrial fire protection. Mm -hmm. With UPC on board, uh, it's clear that in semester three, they will learn there more about buoy and, and wildland fires and more advanced, I would say, also risk and, uh, and industry fire protection. So in a nutshell, I mean, streamlining the curriculum was an exercise, surely. And, but if you, if you start from a model curriculum as a starting point, as a framework, and you think about the final competencies that you would like to achieve starting from different backgrounds, it was a reasonably natural exercise to do that. And overall, over the years, it did not change all that much. We, we introduced some new courses based on feedback from industry, feedback from students. And so one of them, for example, using big data and to analyze and drive fire hazards. And so, so these things, yes, and they have been introduced into the curriculum, but the backbone over the years has not changed all that much. And, and interestingly, if you read back now, the 1995 model curriculum, you would still reasonably accept that what was written there was, was quite visionary of what the fire safety engineer even today still has to do. There have been many modern tools and, and we have much more information and databases than 30 years ago, but the overall competencies, when you come to think of it, what you would expect from a fire safety engineer are fairly stable. I have this paper in my in, in front of my eyes, as you mentioned it. I quickly googled it, and I'm simply mind blown by the names on the mm -hmm. front page. It's Mangus and Drysdale, Fitzgerald, Motavelli, Maurer, Quintiri, Williamson. Yeah. That's a fairly good group of of quite competent people. It speaks visionary from from just the authors list. So so indeed, I, I must say I have not known that 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 paper. I will link it in the show notes. I'm very interested in delving into that after the podcast episode to see uh, how the future of fire safety engineering has been seen in, in 25 years ago, especially that uh, outcomes are, are so promising. Eulalia, and for you, if you want to teach people wild and urban interface, that is uh, quite a different skill set uh, than, than most of fire engineering, also in terms of like how the threats are communicated, how risk is communicated to people. There is probably a little more biology <laughs> involved. I don't, I don't know about you, Bart, but I very rarely care about moisture of my stuff unless it's concrete and it's above 3%. <laughs> Other than that, moisture, mm, I don't care about that. So, so how does the mindset of structural engineer or mechanical chemical engineer work with, with transferring after all of this into we? Well, there are some parts of the knowledge you need to acquire new but it's not that much because it's yeah. mostly related to the vegetation, which is life mm. instead of a dead material, let's <laughs> say we have in, in buildings. So, of course, there is that part of having a, a live material that uh, mm. has moisture content and it affects the way the process of combustion behaves. Uh, so you need to know the different kind of vegetations and the models, how we model vegetation, how fire behaves when burning vegetation, mm. life and death and so on. Sorry to interrupt you. And they learn this I guess through laboratories and experiments, not through handbooks. Is, is that correct? Yeah, well, we have a course on, on wildfire behavior in general. So mm -hmm. let's learn what are the main differences 
between fires in the built environment and fires in the forest and what are the different models to represent fire behavior, what are the main components of fuel that affect fire behavior, etc. And of course, we can work in the lab how this works. So first we learn, of course, the basis of what is already known on wildfire behavior. And, and then we go to the lab and we can see directly through seeing how vegetation burns and works. At, at what point the student must decide which path they go? Yeah, the students, they um, make that decision. Well, actually, they make a proposal. It's the management board in the end that, that decides. But most of all, mostly we can uh, simply follow the, the students' proposal. They do that uh, when they are in Loon. So in, in spring, second semester of the first year, so spring of the calendar year, they um, they ask to which university they, or they suggest to the university where they want to go uh, in semesters three and four. So also for the master's dissertation topic, they decided at that stage, because that is the point where they have learned enough, let's say, of the basics to find out where their main interest is. Some of them have some professional background before entering the program, mm -hmm. and then these people often already have a very clear idea the moment they set foot in Ghent or Edinburgh, they already know what they want to do in the second year. But for the ones who are new to the field, then they need to know a bit about everything before they can make up their mind what is their field of interest. And that's why they, uh, they choose them. And for example, if Ewalia is having a, a course on vegetation and someone is doing uh, stuff in, I don't know, Edinburgh, is it possible to hop in, hop off? Or, or these are like a whole semester long courses and it's not? No. Indeed, it's, it's semester-long courses. And so that's also to try and keep things manageable in terms uh -huh. of mobility. Yeah. This is the way we work. Yes. We, we just went through a pandemic, I guess everyone noticed. Uh, has that changed your way of operations at, at all? During the pandemic, for sure. Yeah, so then obviously we, as everyone, I assume, we went to online mode. Mm -hmm. um, but now since the, everything got started again, the normal modus operandi is on-campus teaching. And, and mm -hmm. obviously, we still have now more people missing classes uh, because COVID has not disappeared from, mm -hmm. from the planet. And also lecturers uh, can be struck by the virus. And then we, we move to online teaching. And we still also now have the, the reflex of recording classes and making those available. But it's, it's only a backup solution. And so our main mode of teaching is really on campus. And I must say that even during the pandemic, I mean, given that the, the groups were not excessively large and that at each institute we have large auditoria, we often managed to still do on-campus teaching by large spreading in large auditoria. And, and students appreciated that very much. Uh, everybody felt very isolated. I know that I felt very isolated mm. during the pandemic. And, and so it was always a pleasure to meet people again in person. And again, also, I, I really want to stress that then the community building is also very, very strong okay. in IMFSE. And I'm not going to say it's the major asset, but it definitely adds to the, let's say, the theory teaching and the exercises and whatever principles we are teaching. I mean, knowing people, as we all know, is sometimes equally important as having knowledge on the topic. Yeah. I, I also feel that there is this very strong bond between the students. And what's fascinating is that it's not only the bond between the students of the same year, which you would probably expect because they live together and work together, but even, you know, between generations of IMFSE students, there is this uh, feeling of association that I am part of this larger community. Uh, you just yeah. had this 10-year anniversary even, and that, that gathered, like, how many? Like, more than 100 people was there, right? Yes, yes, yeah. that is correct. And that was very... Rewarding, I must say, and it shows how indeed, I mean, alumni have some pride in having the, the title, but also they clearly look back to their IMFSE period as a very pleasant and positive period during their lives, which I guess to some is also maybe a little bit of a surprise because m many of them are very stressed uh, when they arrive, which I fully understand. I mean, it's very difficult to uh, adjust in a country that you don't know, you don't know the habits. In, in case of Ghent, you don't speak the language uh, <laughs> Dutch. And, and it's very it's alien. Quite yes. stressful, yeah. but it also uh, stimulates the bonding within the group because everybody helps each other. 
There is indeed intergenerational relationships because we have buddies also. And we always ask second years if they want to be the buddy of, of incoming students. There are links through nationalities. And you can imagine someone from a certain country asking, oh, do you have any alumni from my country? Then we bring them into contact with each other and they can talk to each other. And, and indeed, I mean, this is, this is, I think, a very important point in our program. Do you have statistics of how many countries were represented in IMFSC? Yes, uh, by now we are uh, more than 80 nationalities. So that's quite impressive. Um, and I really wonder, is there a secret list of uh, pubs ranked by popularity passed from generation of IMFSC students to the next <laughs> generations? I'm, 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 pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure such a resource exists and now you need to, do, to make one for Barcelona as well. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure also that the amount of pubs in Barcelona will top the rest of the consortium altogether. So the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. Um, when the students split after Lund, I guess it's, it's some sort of even number. So you work with, with quite uh, small groups of students. H how do you manage that as an academic? Is it just normal like lectures, laboratory experiments, and then some calculation works going? How do you manage such a small group? Because it's interesting. Yeah, uh, well, I think it's a mix of different kinds of knowledge tools, let's say. Also, in, in some cases, for example, in Barcelona, some of the, of the courses are also courses that are being attended for other students of uh, okay. other master's degree. For example, yeah. the chemical engineering master's degree. Uh, they will share the risk and safety at the chemical industry course, for example. So they will not be alone, the 15 or let's say around 15 students, maybe they will come mm. to Barcelona. They will share this course with other master's students at UPC. And of course, for example, the wildland fire behavior will be a mm -hmm. course mostly for the IMFSC students. And that will allow us to apply more lab sessions probably. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a mix of uh, theory lectures with uh, lab courses, with specialists or uh, people uh, from the companies that can bring and do a lecture. I think it's like the same in Ghent and in Edinburgh. It's mm -hmm. It sounds like, again, seeking the things that distinguish this program from my own fire safety engineering course, it seems very individual. Like in a such a small group, you must really know every person in that group. Uh, so it's almost like one-to-one -one tutoring with uh, world's best scientists. I mean, that's clearly a big strength. What, was that something uh, that you intended part or just, just happened like that? Well, indeed, this, this is something that happened, I would say, but also it's, it's partly the result of having dedicated administration people as well. And so mm -hmm. we, this is something that I also would like to stress. I mean, when people think about an educational program, they often think about the academics and the students, but we also have a very strong admin team uh, taking care of many practical things. Uh, housing is, mm -hmm. is a difficult one. Uh, visa issues have not become easier over mm -hmm. the years. <laughs> okay. so, and so we... What is really intended is that we keep a very low threshold between ourselves and the student. And that's very much appreciated. Of course, I mean, if we had 10 times as many students, then we wouldn't be able to remember all the names and, and, and we would not know everybody personally. So in that sense, you could say it's not intended because there is a big need for fire safety engineers. I'm sure that if 10 times more people would graduate, then still everybody would easily find a job somewhere in a field. So in that sense, it's not intended, but given the circumstances, certainly it is intended. And we, we want to, to have an as personal contact as possible and as, and as desired. Of course. I'm not a lecturer, but I had an episode a year ago. I was giving a course on, on compartment fires in, in the main school in ISAVIS in here. And I had the completely opposite uh, experience because in Poland, every fire officer goes through fire safety engineering course. You know, so there would be 200 people attending a lecture on Microsoft Teams. None of them would have a camera on. Five at least would be eating uh, their dinner, which I heard. <laughs> so, so it's a completely different. I, I, I'm not saying it's it's bad. It's it's more like mass production, and you're crafting more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, indeed, it's not not necessarily a matter of good or bad. Indeed, because I'm also teaching courses at Ghent University for more than 100 students, and, and the only time you really see them in person is during the exam. And, so, I mean, <laughs> and then you realize how many there are. <laughs> yeah, there, otherwise there's always at least 10, 15 meters of distance in between. Uh, <laughs> they wouldn't always come to class. 
But so, so indeed, I mean, this is, this is just a different situation. Uh, this is quite specific for the IMFSE program, I would say, that uh, also students entering the program are all very, very interested in all courses. Um, mm-hmm. if you have, I mean, I, I have a background in mechanical engineering, and, and with all due respect to my former professors, I did not enjoy every course equally <laughs> because it's, it's a wide field. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Fire safety engineering is quite well defined. I mean, it's still I mean, more than enough to, to spend two years studying the different aspects. But still, every course is quite closely connected to fire safety science or fire safety engineering. And, and that is also a big advantage that you have very few students who become uninterested in a certain class. And that stimulates also the personal relationship. Otherwise, mm-hmm. people would hide. If they're not interested in your course, they would prefer to be in a large group. What qualities do you seek when recruiting for IMFSC? Like what makes a, a candidate a perfect match for, for the program? We have, we have an online application form, and that's the first step. And I personally do the screening of all the application files coming in. And aspects that are important are, of course, the background studies. And so what have they studied before and the grades? I mean, we also look at the grades as, say, one of the let's say signs of not necessarily intelligence, but also perseverance. And so mm-hmm. we're looking at, at grades. We look at maybe professional experience that they mm-hmm. already have or not. That's not a bottleneck per se, but it helps if you had already some professional experience successful. Um, motivation letter is important to see what they mentioned there. Uh, we also ask for recommendation letters, at least mm-hmm. two. And uh, language is also, that's a criterion. Okay. Uh, it's imposed by university. They need to have a certain minimum requirement, but it's also just essential to be able to follow the, the classes. If, if the language is already a barrier, then it's very difficult to uh, to transfer technical uh, knowledge as well. But, but so we're, that's, say, we're talking English, right? Yes, yes, yes. We're talking English here. <laughs> But that's step one, because, yeah. and then the let's say the, the top fifty to sixty uh, are interviewed by one person okay. of the of the management board. And so each each management board member interviews about fifteen applicants, and then we come to the shortlist for the scholarships. And so, I mean, what's the, what's the ideal match? There is no such thing as, as the ideal match, I would say. But in general, uh, a student or an applicant that scores well at all aspects, including the interview, those would be the ones that we would offer a, a scholarship. But another outcome would be, yes, you are admitted into the program. We think you're qualified, but unfortunately, and due to the heavy competition, we cannot offer you a scholarship. And, and then such students can still come on a self-sponsored basis, uh, of course. Are the criteria for the prospective wildfire scientists the same, uh, Ilalia? Are yeah, you looking sure. the same in people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the students are mostly selected because they are highly motivated in in field of fire science, let's say, and fire safety. And I wouldn't say there is um, another aspect you should ask for them to qualify to to study while on fire science. All of them will be qualified. It's the same things that make uh, someone a great build environment, fire engineer and wildfire urban interface. I wonder how do your students come into IMFSC? If I'm honest about uh, my past, I've came to fire by accident. There was like one in third chance I will be a chemical engineer, a, a pharmacist or a fire engineer. I The, the fate brought me down in here so I, I can talk with uh, magnificent people like you. Maybe I would be very good at making drugs if I picked another path. So... I'm not sure, but uh, but I'm I'm here. Uh, but it honestly was by by accident. And many people I know uh, in fire industry, they either had a relative in, in fire engineering or just saw a poster with uh, with the flames on someone's wall and just say, "Oh, that's that's a career path." I didn't know that. How is it for IMFSC students? Do they come and say, oh, "I want to be a fire engineer. This is my course"? Yeah, well, it's interesting that you you mentioned yourself, uh, Wojciech. I'll take the liberty of doing that as well. Now talking about myself, I also en- ended up in fire almost by accident, um, because I'm a mechanical engineer in background, and my PhD mm-hmm. was on turbulent combustion with flames, and and it's actually flames were the link to fire at some point in, in, in my career. Uh, but now uh, I must say, when we look at the applicants uh, trying to enter our program. Most of them are indeed really focused on fire safety engineering. So in their motivation letter, they explain why. Very often it's because they've 
witnessed an incident in their country and, and realized that there is lack of, let's say, well thought, standardized legislation sometimes. Mm. And that's often what motivates them. Or they are already professionally active and are responsible for fire safety projects in their uh, in their company and they would like to learn more of the background. So I would say that, yes, most of them are really dedicated to the field of fire safety engineering, not not by accident. Uh, Ulali, I wonder, in countries like uh, like Spain, which doesn't have a, a program, well, now it has, but it didn't have a fire safety engineering program, w would you say it's the same, like, well-thought motivation? Or I really wonder what's the mindset Yeah, well, in that case, mostly, probably most of the students came to the field by chance, let's say, mm -hmm. somehow, except those uh, already related to the field, like firefighters. Sometimes mm -hmm. firefighters want to learn more and, and then they enroll. In, they are already motiv motivated and they know very well what they, they are searching for. But uh, right now, in, in our country, very few people know about the field of mm. fire safety engineering, really, because, or they go to work in a company and then they need to do uh, projects related to fire safety engineering. Then, then they realize that, uh, well, that's something they, they like and they, they want to learn more and take uh, further studies on, on this. Yeah. That's a shame because if students knew you can like set fire to things and get paid for that, like who would not take that? Like seriously. <laughs> And and outside of jokes, I, I think a pathway where someone is a firefighter has experienced this firsthand. As we like to say, they felt the heat, you know. It gives you a completely different, not even understanding, it gives you a completely different respect to what we're doing. Because in the end, it's a curriculum that is meant to save lives. And uh, it's also an important thing. And and again, we, we go back to the mindset that you have mentioned about. Answer it honestly. Would you rather pick someone with extremely good uh, notes and bland personality or someone overly enthusiastic and, let's say, not the greatest of the great? I mean, in, in this procedure, you should not un underestimate the importance of the interview. And obviously, I mean, an yeah. interview is still, I mean, it's, it's, it's still one moment in somebody's life. You can have a good day, you can have a bad day. We yeah. appreciate that, but still... You know, after 15, 20 minutes of talking, you get some sense of, of who you are dealing with. And, you know, if what I find very difficult to deal with is, is very arrogant people. And arrogance, you, op you often notice within the first five <laughs> minutes, and, and if not, then within the first 10 minutes. That's, a, to me, is really like a negative sign. So even if it's somebody with very high grades and, and the perfect background, if already during the interview, it was very difficult behavior. Yeah, that would be a no-go. Vice versa happens less often, I would say. I mean, if somebody did not really have a very strong file, they would not make it to the interview. But then maybe I should explain it a bit better. And so we first make a short list of people to be interviewed. Uh -huh. But another outcome could be, look, based on your file, and we think you might qualify for, for the program. So if you're interested to come on a self-sponsored basis, and please let us know. And then still also those people are interviewed. And because uh -huh. we really think the group dynamics is, is very important and, and it's easy to kill group dynamics by one or two difficult people. So we try to filter that out as much as we can. I've claimed that on the show in here and, and had a full episode about it. I think communication skills uh, are the most important skills of fire scientists. Like the one that is thrown into the industry and has to work mm -hmm. out. You know, talking with so many stakeholders, each of them with different background, different understanding, having to communicate the same thoughts in five different levels of com complication and achieve success on, on all of these five levels. So, so it's uh, certainly, you know, the soft skills may be more important than ability to understand the differential equation at some point. I, I, yeah. I, I'm pretty convinced that that would, would be the case. Now, now, as I mentioned, industry... I know IMFSC has fantastic industrial partners. How does that collaboration work with, with the partners outside of academia for IMFSC? And to what extent it's important for you? Oh, it's, it's very important. One, one, for one thing, the money, of course, is important. <laughs> okay. that, that helps to, to let the engine uh, run. But it also gives us what I call street credibility. If you have good industry partners, then um, you also the students realize that we are delivering also good quality alumni. Otherwise, and the industry would not, not support us. 
Collaboration is also quite easy in the sense that we have very regular communication with them. We facilitate internships with these, with these companies. They can offer a master dissertation topic each year. But at the same time, while we listen to their input and feedback, they respect that we make the final academic decisions. And so there is no interference at that level. And what's also important is that the contributions that they give in terms of money are not earmarked to a single person. So it's collected by ourselves and we as a management board decide to also grant scholarships to, let's say, talented applicants that did not receive a scholarship from the European Commission. And so that facilitates many discussions. Uh, and there's no discussion of, oh, you, you, you really gave the money to a poor student or, oh, that company had a better student than, than we did. And mm -hmm. so those discussions are avoided. Just for clarification, the scholarship covers the tuition and living costs as well? Yes. Well, it depends a bit. So the European scholarships, uh, the ones that we get from the European Commission, yes, and covers both. Some scholarships that we grant as management board also cover both. And sometimes we only offer a tuition fee waiver. Okay. So that depends a bit on, uh, on the amount of money that we have, uh, but also the level and the number of high-level uh, applicants. Eulalia at, at Catalonia, did you already um, develop a relation with, with industry? I'm not even sure if industry for wildfire urban interface exists because I think that would be governmental. But I guess that's also an interesting place to see collaborators, right? Yeah, uh, well, as I mentioned before, we have a strong relationship with the cluster of companies related okay. to the fire safety engineer. Uh, so although we are more focused on industrial risk, let's say, and fires, We also have uh, done uh, quite a lot of work in, in fire protection engineering. Mm -hmm. So we have, let's say, that uh, good relationship with several companies. We are now in the process of engaging them as collaborators for the IMFSC. And I, I really think there will be more because, uh, as I said, there is a strong need in here for um, professionals in the in the fire safety engineering domain and uh, mm -hmm. and also to to try to develop new things in contact with uh, the university so i think the master the imfc is a, is a good place to do that so yeah um, mm. i think we have a good future in here I, i did not ask that before but uh, what's the role of associated partners like uh, there's queensland eth zurich maryland University of Science and Technology of China. And I guess now uh, Polytechnic University of Catalonia has advanced to the full partner. So, so there seems to be four associated partners now. What's the role of these institutions? They take care of one uh, master's dissertation topic each year. So they're, okay. they're not involved in teaching courses uh, at this stage. Again, also to keep, to make things manageable and also uh, to avoid monetary discussions also with mm -hmm. the associated partners. It's The students are kind of like exchange students from their side. Um, and so within the IMFSC program, they would spend the final semester then uh, with them. The final is fourth or third? The fourth, yes. yes. Okay. So that so would be like a, a six-month period all in all that they would spend at one of the associated partner institutes. So let, let, let's go through it once again. You start at Gander uh, Edinburgh. You learn the basics, the fundamental fire safety. Uh, you basically catch up. Structural engineers catch up to thermodynamics yeah. of, of mechanical engineers. Mechanical engineers learn how to calculate uh, inertia or, or stuff for <laughs> structures. And then they go loon. So they, they, they learn risk. They learn human uh, behavior. They, they attend the, the fantastic laboratories of Lund. Then they spread around the world for their final semester. And then the fourth one, they focus on their master dissertation in the institution they've chosen at which they, they can write it. Did I get that correctly? No, no. In the third semester, they go to either Ghent or UPC. So ah, Ghent or UPC. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, th the third semester is then the advanced fire protection and also wildfires and industry protection. Huh. And then the fourth semester is then uh, one of the uh, full partner universities or one of the associated partner universities. Okay, now, now I understand. So the groups are not like one fourth of the year. They're like a half of the year. That, yes, that yes, makes, yes. Half of the, that, yeah, that makes it more manageable. I really wonder, yes. like, if you end up with a group of six people. I mean, it's great that you do that, but uh, that, no, no. That, that's a huge effort. Yeah. 
No, no, no. So the groups are about, let's say, on, on average, also including local master programs would be 15, 20 students in each class at, at each moment in time. Very, very interesting. Okay, now let's uh, let's touch the final part of the course, the, the master thesis. I've seen some of them. They usually are very, very good. I mean, you see them published in 550 Journal in different places. They're like really, really good pieces of research for an undergraduate. So how do you find the topic? Like, how do you get this level of, of science out of students? I mean, these guys and girls are, are, are just students. You would not expect them being able to write a five safety journal paper like straight out of their head. One out of 30 could maybe. You get them very consistent at writing good papers. So there must be a secret in there. What do you feed them? <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about this list of pubs. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but on a, more, on a more serious, no jokes aside, I think it's again, it's a little bit of a mix. Yeah? So there, there is a list of topics that each institute would provide. So the mm -hmm. academics would provide a topic and then students can, can pick one of those topics. The same holds, as I said before, for the, the companies from the, the consortium that support us. So they can also offer a topic, which is also then added to the list. And the same holds for associated partner universities. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, students can also define their own topic. Now, of okay. course, um, that also requires a number of iterations because sometimes uh, students are a little bit too optimistic or too ambitious. And both mm -hmm. uh, both ways can, can happen. So it's important. To Welcome come to up Fire Science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but it's important to start from a well-defined mm. topic. That's, I think, the the basic of each successful master's dissertation. And then, well, what do we do? We we do train them quite broadly during their studies in uh, understanding the science in depth. And so, not only broadly but also in depth. So, I think that mm -hmm. is a key difference. Let's say to to distinguish between a, a top student and then a less a top student. Of course, it would only be the top students who would, in the end, be capable of writing a paper eh, for a uh, mm. safety journal or fire technology or whatever mm. uh, uh, journal. And I think it's, it's that plus the fact that they can then also have one semester really focused to their master dissertation. And they're not distracted by courses, which also gives them responsibility and puts some pressure perhaps also on them eh, because they cannot hide behind uh, exams throughout a course or, or assignments that they have to finish. So I, I think that that creates, I would also call it perhaps some seriousness during the, the final semester that, that students go full speed and, and fully focused on their, uh, on their dissertation. But let's imagine someone wants to go to Queensland and write a paper on, on or master thesis about bushfires. To what extent they have access to Eulalia and their uh, their knowledge base. Do, do you still like oversee yeah. these guys and uh, and help yeah, yeah. them? So, so uh, allow me to to reply. Yeah, uh, so then uh, so we always have. If a student has a master dissertation with an associated partner, there is also always one academic supervisor at one of the full partner universities. Oh. It's the joint degree assigned by now at this point four full partner universities. And so that means that one of us has to take re academic responsibility. So it's perfectly possible and even plausible, I would say, if, if students were to go to Queensland to do a master's dissertation on, on wildfires, mm -hmm. that Eulalia or a colleague at UPC would be involved as academic supervisor on behalf of IMFSC. And so, indeed, there would be an automatic interaction with the colleague at UPC for that topic. So mm -hmm. that, that, is, that goes very natural, I would say. Uh, that's the, the way it usually goes at uh, IMFSC, and now with UPC it would be exactly the same. And when there is a research topic, probably in the in the field of wildland fires, probably we will be the IMFSC reference. And that's also perhaps one of the things that on online tools facilitated significantly. Yeah. Uh, if mm -hmm. you compare that to five to ten years ago, and let's say the early days of IMFSC, then uh, I. I just as an anecdote, I remember traveling to Zurich, to ETH, to just check on the student uh, doing his master's <laughs> dissertation there on how things were going and everything was perfectly fine as I had hoped and expected. But still, now it would be much easier, like, okay, oh, can we do an online meeting? And then uh, you could do that on a regular basis. Yeah. The, the world became much, much smaller place after the, the pandemic. And I, I see a lot of, like... If we're on, you know, expanding the model, I, I think this uh, online world presents a lot of opportunities to expand. Like it, it will be very brutally hard 
for anyone to, to replicate MFSC. First, you would have to obtain the European funding and, and stuff. So I don't think it would be even possible at this point having one program of, of this scale. However, we, we see uh, some very interesting efforts like PyroLife happening with, with PhDs and, and MSCA action that, that granted, like I think it was 16 or even 18 PhDs in that field. Uh, that's one more thing. If someone, uh, because many of the students will go into industry, many of them will, will like to be a part of academia. What are the academic prospects for, for your graduates? Well, you know, academia as well as, yeah. as we do. Yeah? So it's a world where there are, I would say, very regularly opportunities if you are accepting to be at any place on this planet. Yeah? So if you're open to traveling, then this is definitely an opportunity. As you say, I mean, we have quite a, f a fraction of our graduates doing a PhD. It's in between mm. 15 to 20 percent, which is quite a high number, it's high, yeah. I would say. And and many of them go with one of the partner institutes of IMFSC, but certainly not all. I mean, the, many students also going to different places. And one of the assets that they have gained is once you've spent two years away from home and you've managed to settle there, you can live almost anywhere on this on this planet and find your way. And so they're very flexible in mm. terms of in terms of living, I would say. So are the are the opportunities there? Sure. But for that, I mean, if you look at now at academia, as you all know, it takes a while to find your way there and to become permanent staff. And so most of our alumni are not yet at that stage and we're a bit too mm. young as a program for that, but um, but many of them already have obtained a PhD and, and some still are still active in academia. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to extract one, one uh, secret, but you, you really have a nice individual approach to people. I mean, you, you treat people well and you have nice people and that seems to be a very big part of the success story there and, and the ability to really expose young students to really world's best scientists within a very well-defined curriculum. Like looking at that from this perspective can't go bad. Yeah, now that you mentioned Wojciech treating people well, I think, I mean, it's been a, a clear trend and I think it's a good trend then to have more attention for DEI um, aspects and diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm. But I think we had this from the start in IMFSC and, 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 and I think that also kind of pays off quite significantly. Also, again, going back to the communication skills, I think that's also part of it, and that, that you treat everybody with a mutual respect and, um, and understanding. And this, I mean, we're talking here soft skills now, clearly, but it's something that we put really in the center of our values from start with IMFSE. I think indeed, I mean, it kind of also connects to what you said, like uh, alumni feeling part of a family. I think that's mm. indeed more or less uh, the, the feeling that is created. I wanted to ask you a question, why masters, why why not bachelors or something? But I think now I understand it's self-explainable. Uh, self you need people with a certain background. But it's kind of beautiful that you mix structural engineers, mechanical engineers, chemical engineers all together. Because then they can, you know, level up to the same level on their own just by uh, being exposed to each other. You know, structural engineering will help the chemical one, the chemical one would help them in chemistry. It's a really great way to, to build a common base and then proceeding through a very difficult subject of fire dynamics uh, yes. from the same but, level. But it does require some maturity. Yeah? So that's indeed yes. also why master's level and not bachelor, you, you can expect that of, of someone in their 20s and, and someone perhaps certainly with some professional experience already. That's, by the way, also something yeah, that we try to strive for, that there is a, a, some spreading in age in, in each cohort and, and experience. But indeed, you cannot expect that if you if you put together 20, 18-year-old uh, um, mm. people, you have a different dynamics. Uh, yeah. Interesting dynamics, surely, yeah, but the different dynamics that, uh, that we do not cover at this point. And just, just a final one. How many make it through? Like, what's the statistic? Is it, I would shoot it's it's upwards of eighty five percent, maybe even upwards of ninety. Yeah, yeah, it's more. And so, indeed, I mean, we have very few dropouts. If we have a dropout, it's very often due to personal circumstances, mm -hmm. um, and but very rarely because of lack of competence or, or knowledge. And and that's a little bit the the luxury, of course, of of having a few hundred applicants, and then in the mm -hmm. end. 
only 20 make it or 20, 25, 30 now this year and make it to into the program. Yes, then unless you don't do a good job during the selection procedure and the ones that are accepted into the program have a good chance of being successful. Okay, and so that combination of screening and interviews turns out to be a, a fairly effective way of filtering good candidates. Fantastic. So the most important question, where does one apply? Ah, on the website. So imfsc.com, imfsc.de, all these, all these links to the same website. And the application forms are online now for the uh, upcoming good. academic year. Is so, there a separate application process for the scholarship-based and non-scholarship? No, but you, you can, in, well, by default, we assume that you are interested in a scholarship. Okay, you can yeah, that's you a need reasonable it. assumption. <laughs> but yeah, you can indicate if, if you, don't, you really don't need it, that can be indicated as well. Uh, but it doesn't change the, the quality check. Yeah? So we are not more tolerant for somebody who's bringing a, a bag of money because that doesn't help anyone. Uh, yeah. It only leads to a lot of frustration for all parties involved. It's much better to try to avoid that before entering than uh, once they are in the program. Very, very good. And I guess if someone says they're a religious listener of Fire Science Show, they definitely will, will score a lot of points at the interview. So it's an extra <laughs> point. <laughs> I hope for that. Okay, Bart, uh, Bart, thank you very much for coming and talking about the origins and the concept. Lalia, thank you for, for telling us about uh, the future and the new opening of the program. And I hope this will be uh, useful to, to people who would first like to understand what makes a fire safety engineer well-trained and how to replicate the success story elsewhere. And boy, I, I need to jump into that beautiful paper now. <laughs> Thanks to you. How could I miss it? What was I doing in 1995? I, I better not tell. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for the invitation, Wojciech. It was a pleasure being here, and uh, thanks for the interview. Thank you very much, Wojciech. It was a pleasure, hey. and it's a nice initiative, those yeah, podcasts. Please, so, please recommend it to, yeah, to the, sure. all the students. Uh, my statistics will go through the roof. Anyway, yeah. guys, thank you so much, and, and see you around. Take care, Wojciech. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. And that's it. Wow, what a, what a program. What a nice group of people. I wanted to extract the secret of IMFSC, uh, but I'm not sure if there exists one secret. I guess it, it was mentioned in the episode. There's probably many. First thing first, treat people well, work with nice people. That's That certainly helps with developing a great, great safe fire safety program. Second thing, build this mentorship relation where people can learn. And have highly motivated people to learn. If you have highly motivated people and you have highly motivated teachers, this cannot go wrong. They will transfuse the knowledge for sure. Third thing, open yourself to, to diversity. The program has participants from 80 countries. That's a very diverse group. And each of them brings something new, something unique. You know, even when they start learning about their own country legislation systems, they are so different. So, so such a difference in, in approaches to fire safety. It, it's beautiful to learn from each other that, and that certainly helps to build this holistic view over what, what fire safety engineering truly is. And fourth thing, I, I don't think we, we talked about that much in the podcast episode, but I know they learn through experiment. They touch the fire. They really do observe the fire. It's not just bland, sit at the desk, read the handbook, open FDS, run a simulation, you're done. It's a very, very active program where they really get a chance to, to know fire. And by experiencing fire, you become a better fire engineer. You cannot learn experience, you have to experience experience, like I, I like to say. So and there's a, there's a lot of, of these nice things about the program and all together, they make it uh, one of the best or maybe even the best in the world, for sure. So thank you, Bart. Thank you, Lalia, for joining me in this episode. I wish you all, all the best for the IMFSC. I wish all the best to IMFSC students. And I hope there among the audience there are some new people who would like to be IMFSC family members. The, the path is open. You just need to apply. And as Bart said, there's uh, added points for listening to Fire Science Show. So make sure to claim, make that claim <laughs> and it will help you in the interview. 
so guys, that's it for today. Thank you very much for being here with me and see you here again next Wednesday. Thank you. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.